You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tim Powers is the author of Declare, Last Call, Expiration Date, Earthquake Weather, and the Anubis Gates. His new novel is Three Days to Never. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Well, happy to be here. Tim, your work has a very interesting flavor. It, it seems grittily realistic, even when you're talking about the supernatural. How do you achieve that paradox? Well, for one thing, <clears throat> I think uh, it's the only way to trick the reader into vicariously experiencing the supernatural. Uh, I think if you don't surround your supernatural event with mundane, uh, familiar, tangible objects, the reader, so as to fool the reader into thinking it's actually happening, the reader's likely to conclude, oh, I see, this is an imaginary story. And they might keep reading on that basis, but they'll be reading in the wrong gear. I want them to take the supernatural events as uncritically vicarious experience as much as they do the very mundane events. Um, So I think the only way to effectively force the reader to experience supernatural things is to dress it up in in very tangible, gritty, uh, sensory, immediate uh, type details. Now, um, one of the things that I love about your, especially your most recent book, is this, it's some of the best writing about uh, suburban America that I've ever read. I, and that's, talk not, about, that's nice. <laughs> talk about just creating... Irregardless of the wonderful aspects of the fantastic, talk about just your experience of just creating America, and then tell me why this, the um, elements of the fantastic, how, how you use them to make it seem even more like America than it is. Well, as for the uh, sort of portrayal of American neighborhoods, freeways, uh, it's simply driving around and looking at them, uh, having, you know, for example, lived in Southern California since I was seven. Um, I suppose anybody driving through the same landscape, each person will pick out a different sort of pattern. And you could, in fact, probably evaluate the people by which details they choose to notice and, and what kind of pattern they arrange them in. I suppose I look at everything with a slight suspicion that there might be the supernatural involved. I mean, I'd be skeptical if you were to claim there was, but but my sort of reflex, I guess, is to think, what do you suppose goes on here on full moon nights? Uh, What do you suppose that old gas station looks like on Walpurgis night? Um, And then as far as the what sort of fantastic supernatural elements I put into these settings, I usually try to derive it from indigenous 
superstitions or mythologies. Uh, for example, a story set in the Caribbean, the supernatural is very likely to be voodoo. Uh, in, in Arabia, it's likely to be derived from the Thousand and One Nights. And in, in an area like, say, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, where there might not be an actual indigenous mythology, you can kind of extrapolate one. You can kind of say, well, if, there, if we say there is a kind of underlying mythology here, let's look for clues. What is it? Well, obviously, that's part of it. Obviously, this pretty clearly has some bearing. And you do come up with a kind of ideally fairly self-consistent uh, set of superstitions for it. Your work, too, is, is known from being, for being meticulously researched. You take particular joy in, in research. I mean, from, from your um, creation of, you know, the, the, the Byron Weekend to the, your creation of, you know, the, the, the gin, the, the work in, in Las Vegas, um, and in, in the Anubis Gates of, of underground London. Talk about uh, how you choose research, or does the research choose you? Yeah, I kind of stumble into it. Uh, what usually happens is I'll be reading some nonfiction book just for fun, and I'll notice some peculiarity. And if I notice two or three peculiarities, I'll think, okay, this isn't fun reading anymore. Now this is research reading. Uh, with the spies in Arabia story, it was from reading about Kim Philby, famous mm. British trader. Uh, just reading him because I'm a big John le Carre fan. I love espionage. And I ran into the fact that Philby's father made sure not to have him baptized. And they took samples of water from the Jordan River to test for supernatural properties. And you think, what tests do you suppose? You have? Dead mouse, pour it on, see if he comes back to life. Really? Well, I, I don't know what tests they did. <laughs> but, uh, and then he always had a kind of fascinated horror of the Catholic Church. And when he was head of station in Turkey, he was forever driving out in a Jeep to take pictures of Mount Ararat. And I thought, well, okay, well, this sort of seems to indicate a pattern. And at that point, I begin reading for work rather than fun. And I kind of assume an honorary paranoid schizophrenic attitude, looking for occult clues. Uh, and anybody's biography, if it's a big, thorough enough biography, you can find what you can choose to interpret as occult clues. And especially somebody like a spy whose, whose life consists of deception and secrecy. But what I'm looking for is bits that are too cool not to use. Um, <laughs> and, I like that. Yeah. And once I have, say, 20 bits from the now dozens of books that I read connected with the initial trigger biography, say, once I've got, say, 20 things that are too cool not to use, obviously I've got 20 pieces of the eventual book, which is quite a lot mm -hmm. to have, really, since you haven't started yet. And the task becomes 
how do you connect the dots? Um, and I suppose there's some skill involved in that, but you know, somebody would connect the dots in a stupid way. Well, this person is connecting the dots brilliantly. But the nice thing is I don't have to have any imagination. Mm. I don't make anything up. I find it all in the research. And the big challenge for me is arranging the bits, but I don't have to create the bits. So, uh, yeah, research for me is, uh, I like, you know, digging for gold. Um, I, I find all the cool stuff that I put in my books ready-made. Do, do you sometimes find yourself uh, having to cut yourself off from research? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because every book points to three more. Mm -hmm. If uh, one character in his old age became interested in beekeeping, you think, well, I should know about beekeeping. And so you read three books about beekeeping. And that leads you to honey refining, if in fact honey is refined. Uh, it, there can be really no end of it. Mm -hmm. you, you have to tell yourself at some point, so you know what? The beekeeping end stops here. Uh, and, and eventually you have to say, oh, look, there's a new biography of some character involved in the book just published. You've read enough biographies. You don't need to get the new one. Um, so, yeah, there, and also you tell yourself, it's been two years. You, you're not going to do research for more than two years. Stop it. <laughs> because it's, it's tempting because it looks like work. It, you know, you, what are you doing? I'm researching. But it's easier than writing. And so if you don't watch out, you get trapped in this like closed loop of doing the easier bit. Now, uh, tell me, uh, how did you get started writing this sort of fiction? This sort of fiction, it was because back in about 1975, Roger Elwood, who uh, was editor of Laser Books and who had edited a lot of uh, anthologies, called me and two other writers and said, uh, would you be interested in writing a series of, I want 10 books about King Arthur reincarnated throughout history. You guys can divvy them up. Um, and I was 23. Who are the other writers? K.W. Jeter and Ray Nelson, our Faraday Nelson. Mm -hmm. And we said, sure, sure. And we got together and divvied up history. And... I got, I think, 1529 and 1650 and 1810. Um, and the books were never published. The deal fell through, and each of us was left with at least one uh, unsold book about King Arthur being reincarnated in the wrong place in history. At which point, of course, each of us looked at the others and thought, I better get mine out to the publishers before you get yours out, because the publishers are all going to be really sick of this notion very shortly. But even though it was kind of an abortive uh, effort, I, it was long enough for me to discover that with history, you get a lot of very valuable things free. If you're trying to describe very fantastic, over-the-top, implausible action, you get to say things like London, Thames, you know, Yorkshire, <laughs> <laughs> which people say, I've heard of those. Those are real places. 
this must all be true, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is an exaggeration. But, uh, and, of course, also the, the trick that you get all your neat stuff free, mm-hmm. you know, geography, weather, economy, cuisine, dress, all of it's ready-made. You just have to find it rather than go to the trouble of making it up. Now, uh, you've used uh, Le Carre, and, and the influence of Le Carre is, has been notable in your novels uh, of late. Well, certain, certainly in the ones that involve spy stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, talk to us uh, uh, about how that, you know, how that came about and how you take that kind of tradecraft world of spies and then use elements of the fantastic to make it seem, I think, more realistic than, than it might be without them. True. Um, the, the nice thing about espionage and tradecraft, uh, in fact, I remember one time describing Declare as tradecraft meets, meets Lovecraft. Um, the nice thing about the spy trade is that, uh, by definition, it's deceptive and there's secrets. Uh, if a secret agent is assigned to do X, uh, he can assume that whatever the reason for it, it won't be the reason he's been told to do it. Uh, And the people he meets are probably not what they seem to be. Uh, In fact, they may only be pretending to be not what they seem to be. Uh, It's just a beautiful, it's a real world thing. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it exists. It's a beautifully... Uh, looking glass, mirror image, uh, deception on top of deception on top of deception, and all its little protocols and and passwords and uh, safe houses and dead drops all fit in real beautifully with the kind of, say, Lovecraft uh, protocols. Um, and so to posit for the sake of a book that what's behind all this secrecy and ruthlessness and apparently meaningless behavior, which you've been assured has some purpose, it's not at all a bad fit to put a supernatural explanation under it all. Um, because a supernatural explanation would believably lead to exactly this sort of complicated, uh, de- deceptive, uh, uh, inexplicable dance. One of the things I think that you do really well, and you were talking about this earlier, is you recreate the world for us as we read your novels and walk out uh, among the world. You recreate the world for us as just a, a world of omens and portents. Uh, nothing, and, and this again goes with the, the tradecraft thing, nothing is what it seems to be. It always seems that there's an imminent force waiting to come out from behind the walls, behind the soda fountain, behind the newspaper stand. I think there's something in hardwired in our brains that would like to believe that. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're all grown-ups. We know that, in fact, that's not the case. Uh, but there's still some part of our brain that, that is very willing to believe that the guy walking down the street apparently uh, 
paying attention to traffic or the friend next to him. He's pretending not to be watching us. And the people you can see up in the windows of the office building, they're not letting on because they're professionals, but really they are clocking us. Um, and every kind of coincidence, we can say, oh, well, you know what? That was not a coincidence. Um, if we, of course, indulge this, we wind up as paranoid schizophrenics. But just for entertainment, just for the duration of a story, it's a lot of fun. Um, and again, it fits both with supernatural and with espionage. Uh, if you're scared of, you know, ghosts or communist agents, either way, you're looking twice at every figure who seems to be lingering at the other end of the street. The other thing I think you do very well is that in all of your novels, there's not, they're never black and white. There, it's a very, you have, again, and this is, I, I didn't even think about this, but this is, again, another case that has to do with the best, like the best espionage novels. Everything is in shades of gray. And you're these utterly suburban characters who own these kind of weird tract houses that have a garage in which some kind of thing may be hidden that may be the key to the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to everything. <laughs> uh, they're they're neither good nor bad. They're they're kind of just confused and and uh, I guess almost pitiful in some ways. Yeah, I think that's another um, consequence of wanting to trick the reader into thinking this is really happening. Mm -hmm. You want them to sort of forget with the surface of their mind that they're sitting in a chair somewhere holding a stack of pages all glued together along one edge. You want to trick them into thinking this is real people in real places. And therefore, you don't have a character who is pure evil. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a character who's pure good. Uh, and when you have a character who's an antagonist, uh, the bad guy, um, you put yourself in his place, you imagine his life, his uh, whole situation, and how he got this way and why why it happens to be imperative that he, you know, kill our hero's daughter, say. Um, and you don't, I trust, come to the point where you can agree that in certain circumstances, eight-year-old girls should be killed. Nevertheless, you can sort of over his shoulder see how he might be convinced of that. And therefore, you do sort of backhandedly, quote, sympathize, unquote, and so the character won't be simply a caricature when it comes to moral choices, one hopes. And this kind of complexity, again, it makes the, uh, their belief in the supernatural more believable. Good point. Good point. I, I like that. Yes. Right. If you've got what seems to be a fairly convincing, fairly realistic character who says, oh, my God, look, a werewolf, you say, oh, golly, there must be a werewolf there. <laughs> yeah. Well, if a cardboard guy says it, you think, what do cardboard, what do cardboard guys know? <laughs> yeah. You like buried objects, don't you? You like the physically bur buried? Physically buried objects. Maybe there's, I do. There's a lot of them in, in your stuff. Uh, um, I'm thinking in three days to know where the Einstein device. And, and I, I, I wonder, this is a, a, maybe a Lovecraftian thing. Lovecraft has, a, has some buried stuff. But it could about, be. I, I grew up on Lovecraft. Could you, uh, did you bury things in your own backyard? Oh, but no more than anybody 
any other kid, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. There does seem to be something intrinsically intriguing about, I believe it's buried here. Uh, <laughs> shovel, 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 thump. Yes, <laughs> we've reached it. Uh, it. I think it's sort of, God knows where it comes from, fairy tales, pirate stories, Treasure Island. Uh, there, it does seem to appeal to some sort of uh, kid portion in our heads. Uh, you know, the buried treasure, the buried skeleton, the mm -hmm. opening a grave, um, catacombs. Uh, it, it, it's, it's probably, probably Sigmund Freud could explain it in a way that would make us sick, but uh, <laughs> I, I think there's just something fascinating about the idea of you, you walk past this spot all the time, but get a shovel and dig and you see all here, you know, here's King Solomon's head under there, or the the power lines to uh, the all the phones in uh, Silicon Valley. Right, <laughs> which, right. Which were recently <laughs> which, cut. Which might be coiled around a, a cylinder full of holy water or something. <laughs> I like that. See, this yeah. is this is uh, the kind of vision I think that you specialize in. You, well, yeah, you, I always immediately off. start thinking, well, they're they're going to need some kind of boost there, uh, <laughs> and more than electric. Now, uh, one of the things I like about your novels is they really, um, they seem to seamlessly blend genres so that you don't really notice what genre they are. They just seem uh, to exist in their own kind of peculiar suburban s space behind which there's a, a yawning uh, universe that anything could come in from. Um, and you have this, you, you combine aspects of science fiction and, you know, time travel with, with aspects of the supernatural so that there seems to be a continuum for you from one to the yeah. other. Yeah, well, for one thing, if you're going to have supernatural adventures going on, you can't neglect physics. Uh, if you're, I would never, for example, have an invisible man who could see. Because after all, light's going right through him. He's not stopping any of it. Avoid oh, though. He might right? be able to. He might be able to see in the ultraviolet, or maybe infrared range. But uh, unless I see two retinas walking around, uh, I, I can't. I can't believe he could see. And if I had a little two-inch tall man, kind of a stock character in fantasy, I want to know how much he weighs. How much brain can he have? How does he? Um, Keep warm. He's got way too much surface area for his volume. Um, he's like a shrew. He's probably eating all the time. Uh, his bone structure is funny for his size. And so forth. Uh, levitation. I'm going to wonder how do you square that with general relativity? It, Einstein would be very upset to see levitation. And the thing is, I think if you ignore this stuff, if you do have a two-inch tall man who simply behaves like a regular person, except happens to be two inches tall, you're running the risk of letting the reader fall into that, oh, I see this is an imaginary story, and mm -hmm. you don't want him to do that. You want to convey the fantastic details so that the physics conforms. Um, 
I, I wrote a vampire novel once, and I was trying to figure out why do they hate crucifixes? Do they hate right angles? <laughs> if so, I mean, they couldn't go through doors at that rate. Uh, and even though I'm Catholic, or maybe because I'm Catholic, I didn't want to bring in Jesus Christ as a plot element. So I finally just ditched crucifixes. I thought I can't. I can't think of a reason why. They would hate crucifixes, so I left that part out. I came up with an explanation for things like sunlight and mirrors, but it strikes me you can't simply say, well, it's magic. That, that period, that's, that's all I need to say. And so I think the result is that it's fantasy, but with sort of a placatory wave toward scientific plausibility, not much, but a bit of a Consistency. Trying for consistency. Yeah. Uh, so I think the result is that I write what I think of as the stuff that gets reviewed in Locus. I figure it's really one big pool, which includes fantasy, science fiction, supernatural horror. It really is all much more the same than, than distinct. And most writers who write one, also write the other corners of the pool. You think Heinlein, uh, Fritz Leiber, uh, I think most of our writers swim around freely without worrying about, you know, you're in the corner defined by this or that other corner or something like that. Now, you mentioned that you're Catholic, and could you talk about how that informs your writing? Uh, I wouldn't much be aware of it. it. It would, I mean, it would, it would color my perspective, mm -hmm. and uh, it it probably would explain why I think there's always the possibility of a supernatural sort of underfabric, um, and I suppose it would influence what sort of characters I think are admirable and which ones I think are despicable. But, of course, that's not likely to differ with anybody else, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do we admire? Uh, courage is good. Loyalty is good. Treachery and theft are bad. Uh, these are kind of constants among most faiths and, and even among everybody in general. Um, I... I I'm nearly never using Catholicism mm -hmm. in Declare, I sort of posited that it was true, mm -hmm. as in Three Days to Never, mm -hmm. I posited that Judaism was true. Mm -hmm. um, in a, a, Drawing the Dark, I don't know what it was exactly, but... There was reincarnation and stuff, which mm -hmm. is certainly not any part of Catholicism. Beer uh, is true. Hmm? Beer is true. Beer, beer, <laughs> and beer, in fact, is, uh, alcohol at least, is certainly important in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and then there was one short story about a priest in a confessional and a ghost comes in, mm -hmm. um, and he's trying to figure out how do you absolve a ghost, somebody's already dead. But in general, I think it's fairly covert, mm -hmm. more implicit than explicit. I certainly hope so. I would hate, um, as a general rule, I don't want 
my religious or political opinions to be at all evident mm -hmm. in my books. I would hate uh, it if I ever wrote something in which I had something to say. <laughs> I hate fiction that um, has themes. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, statement. Well, if, if I'm reading a story and I'm interested in the characters and suddenly I get a hint that really the author is trying to make a point about the war in Iraq or sexism or homophobia or the environment, my suspension of disbelief collapses. Mm, mm. As soon as I see a message, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And because suddenly I realize, oh, these characters are simply behaving the way they are in order to illustrate some point the author arrived with. Mm. Mm. And I think, well, I don't want to watch little illustrators of a point. I want to read something where there's characters. Um, so, yeah, any kind of didactic fiction. I, as a reader, I hate it. And as a writer, I, I certainly hope I never do it. You talked about characters. I think that your characters are one of the, the finest points of your books. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, and they, they are just so... Uh, I guess so believable. They they're like kind of like people I would know. So talk about creating these people. I mean, are, are these like people you know? He, he often uh, in that in that I'll take say two or three people I actually know mm -hmm. and kind of laminate them into <laughs> one. Uh, and at that point, the resulting character, sort of a trinity. Uh, is going to wind up being changed and trimmed and amplified for the purposes of the plot. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, it's the requirements of the story that define the characters. Mm -hmm. I might say, this guy's got to be more uh, conflicted about his ex-wife. Mm -hmm. Not for reasons that really arise from his definition, but because the plot requires him to be that way. Mm -hmm. And since the plot requires him to have this inner conflict, let's build him to have that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's the requirements of the plot that set their definitions. But then given that, I try to, you know, make them as convincing as, as possible. I would actually have thought it was the other way around. No, the, Your plot, the plot's in charge. The mm -hmm. plot is the uh, governing pattern. Now, well, let's talk about plot. Um, you you start off with 10 or 20 uh, right. points of light from, from your research. Too cool not to use. Too cool not to use. Um, where What happens next for you as a writer? Do you, like, uh, sit down and, and write the... Uh, uh, the pitch the, the pitch version of it so to speak well yeah what I do is I will um, arrange those things or at least look at them and say which one might be the result of mm -hmm. which can we figure some before and after here some mm -hmm. causality chains in a rough way and then having made of that what as much as I can I'll say okay 
extrapolate a little. Give me the surrounding situation in which these things could occur. Um, what potential snags are there that a character could get caught in? Then I'll say, well, okay, now give me some characters. Uh, give me four. Uh, two men, two women, let's say. Too short, too fat, or a couple of them are old, a couple of them are young. Make them varied, male and female. Um, and I'll be looking at those 20 things that are too cool not to use and the kind of situation I'm developing around those things. And I'll say, now, what sort of characters could most effectively be propelled through this situation? Well, mm -hmm. it would be very interesting for, uh, say, one-eyed orphan. Uh, it wouldn't be interesting at all for a um, telepathic, uh, you know, uh, octogenarian. Uh, and then I try to figure for each character what would he or she do anything to get and at the same time what would he or she do anything to avoid having to face. And if I know those things about several characters, they can act as hooks uh, so that he can't get what he needs unless she is forced to face what she fears, etc. Um, Boy, that's a fascinating idea. And, and then I figure the hinge of the plot, mm -hmm. uh, the, the sort of fulcrum of it, is when your main character or several of the main characters are faced with a hideous hard choice. You know, you got to choose A or B, and either one is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I begin trying to figure out events. Sometimes I even make up little index cards, each one of which has a remark, a realization, a bit of description. Mm. Uh, I'll lay them, not always, but sometimes I'll lay them out on the floor with like future in that direction and past in this direction and try to move, like would this be better if it happened before this event or after this event? Well, let's look at it both ways. I like it sitting after. One time I was doing this and our enormous 300 pound landlord came crashing through the room and cards flew everywhere. And after he left, I looked and thought, maybe he helped. Uh, is this pattern better? And then when it's all satisfactory, you know, this card, six cards after that one and that one preceded by this one. Then I get a giant piece of paper divided up into calendar squares, each ideally about a foot square, and transcribe the events into the day squares. And at this point, I can put that piece of paper up on the wall, and I can literally see the shape of the story. I mean, look, there it is. It's got a big bump over here, you know, nothing much over there. Boy, that's incredible. Wow. Well, it, largely, this is to postpone the effort of actually starting to work. <laughs> it's like getting caught up in the research. Mm -hmm. You look like you're working, but you're not actually writing anything. Mm -hmm. If I really want to put off doing any work, I'll, I'll actually highlight the bits on the giant calendar that'll happen on stage, uh, on camera, mm -hmm. and leave unhighlighted the bits that'll simply be referred to that happen elsewhere. But eventually it does come to the point where I have no further ways to waste time and have to actually begin writing. Um, although even actually before I actually begin writing, I'll draw two lines 
in that calendar, dividing Act One from Act Two and Act Three. Mm. I won't indicate in the story that we've moved now from Act One to Act Two, but I'll know it, and it'll make me think a little differently about the events. So all your books are three acts if we well, might knew be, it? Actually, there might be four sometimes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> might be five. But uh, it is a good cure for writer's block because, I mean, every day I would rather do anything but write. Um, any old paperback will distract me mm. for the whole day, but at least I can always look at the calendar on the wall and think, there's the last thing you wrote, there's the next thing you got to write, don't pretend you don't know what it is, uh, <laughs> turn the damn computer on, write that next scene. Now, uh, when, you're, when you're in the writing process, you're basically writing then from beginning to end. Oh yeah, yeah. And you've got, instead of what some people, I guess what this is, the, the paper on the wall is your version of the uh, outline. Yeah, in this yeah, sense. it is. Yeah. I might have an outline too, mm -hmm. but the, the paper on the wall is the big sort of governing uh, grid. Project plan. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, when, when you're going through through the prose, your prose is really particularly nice. It, oh, it thank you. It really captures the, the, your, your places that you go. I mean, I'll never forget the, the Al I feel like I've been to the Alps and seen these stunning clouds right. from the stress of her regard. And, and I, I never have been to the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I but have. I read your book. Uh, well, <laughs> well, luckily I read a lot of people who had been. And li likewise, when you're driving, when your characters are driving through the suburbs outside of L.A. and they're really reedy and gross and kind of these weedy things, which is where I used to live. <laughs> so I really like that, and I've really been there. Um, talk about creating the different prose effects that you do. Are, are you a, does this just flow off the tip of your pen once you've got everything down? Well, the main... I remember Hemingway once was asked uh, how he came up with his style, and he said it was a result of trying to convey very clearly the elements of a scene he thought ought to be emphasized, uh, and that giving these elements of a scene their proper emphasis and clarity imposed a kind of awkwardness on his prose, a kind of torque. Mm -hmm. And he said that awkwardness or torque is what people call his style. Wow. Uh, and that sounds plausible to me mm -hmm. uh, because any of us, you know, trying to convey some scene, each of us is going to choose different elements without even thinking. We'll choose different elements that we think are the important ones that need to be conveyed. And how much, you know, uh, work should be put in on making the reader very aware of that dish of candies. Um, you might give it only a passing reference. I might devote ha, a lot of time to it. <laughs> and, and I think that does result in our style. Mm -hmm. uh, some people think, oh, hell with the candy. In fact, hell with the decor altogether. All that matters is uh, what these guys say. Mm -hmm. His style is going to be different from someone who goes crazy for the pattern in the tablecloth. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, yeah, style is... A resulting awkwardness and of course ideally you don't want awkwardness in something you write and so I think to the extent you're capable of noticing your style you're working to get rid of it 
<laughs> it's sort of a style is kind of things that happen in a blind spot. Mm. To the author, it looks simply clear. Mm-hmm. There's no perceptible style. Mm-hmm. It's like if you hear somebody with what we would call an accent, they don't think they have an accent. No. They think we have an accent. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think the perfect style for any writer is the one he or she is unaware of using. One of the things that you do quite well is to show us these gritty and real worlds and then very patiently uh, and very clearly deconstruct them and take our reality out from under us and replace it with something a little more threatening, a little, lot more interesting. And this is kind of your use of the elements of the, the fantastic. And I wanna, want you to talk about how these elements of the fantastic, I think, help you get back to uh, describe reality in a way that ultimately is more real than just describing what's there. Interesting thought. Um, I think we've got a lot of sensory apparatus. Obviously, a writer wants to give color and shadow and things like that, and smells and sounds and echoes, um, textures. I think also a, a, a kind of sensory apparatus we have that can be lit up is supernatural fear, supernatural awe. And I sort of like to use them too. Uh, And I don't think anybody is sophisticated or skeptical enough to be genuinely immune. I mean, we can find people here who will say, oh, I think that's all nonsense. I don't believe in uh, ghosts. I'm scared of urban gangs and nuclear warfare. Uh, And you think, sure, sure. In the middle of the day, of course you are. But if you're the only person around in an empty house at three in the morning when something's dragging downstairs, you don't think it's an urban gang member. You know exactly what it is. It's a werewolf. Um, And if you don't know it in your brain, you know it in your spine. Mm. Mm. Um, So yeah, I think there's a sort of like there's a speech center in our heads. Mm-hmm. I think there's a supernatural center in our heads where given the slightest bit of slack, uh, we'll jump to the conclusion that supernatural stuff is going on. And so I like to, in fiction, try to give readers that slack and a nudge. Now, one thing you also do very well in your novels is to uh, weave in not just your own work, but you weave in a lot of literary references. Shakespeare, Byron, I mean, it's all over it. And it's, it, it, That's true. And it's very, very interesting because I think it, uh, you manage to do it in a manner that um, makes those literature seem just a part of the warp and woof of the world itself. Yeah, that's fun. That's uh, part of the, that's one of the tricks that I hope nudges readers into accepting the supernatural mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. I posit. Because I'll say, look, Shakespeare, look, Browning, Byron, uh, well, who would you like? Uh, they're Coleridge. Uh, here's some quotes from them. And not only are they supernatural, but they're consistent. Look, they're all talking about the same thing. Swinburne here, good heavens. <laughs> 
What did they know that you don't? Um, yeah, I think like using real places uh, and some, you know, snippets of real science that you kind of wave at the reader, like a distraction. Um, those are also an attempt to make the reader think, at least for the duration of the story, uh, golly, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is real. Um, and I've always been, I mean, I was an English literature major in college and uh, always had a whole lot of favorite poets. And poetry, of course, also is beautifully effective at eliciting that kind of numinous response, mm -hmm. that kind of pre-rational response, uh, which I very much want to get. Yeah, that's actually the, the one of the main effects of your prose in, in your stories, is there, there is this, they create a numinous effect. It's exactly the right word. It's what I want. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I get it or not, but I can see other writers who get it. Uh, Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, uh, Chesterton, uh, and I see that and I think, I want to do that too. So I, I, I try to look at how do they do it. Um, and I, I mean, as a reader, I'm familiar with that effect. Mm -hmm. Just like somebody could, as a drinker, be familiar with, you know, being drunk. But then you want to go across the street and learn how to distill that stuff yourself. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Now. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Are you in a research phase? No, I've actually started writing finally. Oh. <laughs> actually made my calendar. Um, it, uh, it takes place in London in roughly 1880, 1870. It spans from about 1862 through about 1882. And it involves um, the Rossetti family, Dante mm. Gabriel Rossetti and his sister Christina and their two other siblings. And it started because I was just reading for fun <laughs> and I noticed a couple of odd things and then started reading for serious, which is interesting because then you have to buy every biography <laughs> and then you think, well, I also need every book on London from that time. So you buy all these books on London and you gotta buy them. You can't get them out of the library because you're gonna destroy them with notes and so you have sticky notes in your in your uh I make customized indexes on the fly leaves because there'll be an actual index in the back but mm -hmm. it won't be addressing the real categories I'm looking I'll have a c entry for like vampires uh you know um nightmares uh and there's underlining and cross-referencing and the books wind up just a wreck mm -hmm. uh and of course, I couldn't deal with library books because I want to keep them for a couple of years. Mm. Uh, but uh, if you do that and make a bunch of computer files, cross-referencing all these various books, and and interestingly, there always comes a point after I've cooked up um, my secret explanation for what was really going on. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, there'll come a point when I get a fresh research book Oh, this, look at this. It was published, you know, in 1900. Uh, it deals with the neighborhoods I'm talking. i got to have this. And you'll read something that appears to confirm your theory. Mm -hmm. And you slam the book shut and think, oh, my God, I'm not making this up. 
I've stumbled on the actual explanation. And for some reason, I always imagine that the NSA or somebody is aware of my researches and aware that I've figured this out and that right now there's a sniper in the backyard <laughs> lining up my head in his telescopic sight. Uh, that's only because they want your next book to come out sooner rather than later. Well, it, uh, I've sworn to the uh, editor, very, very patient, good-natured editor, I've sworn to her that it will be done by June. Now, will, will there be a limited edition? Y yeah, I, uh, all things, if all things go as planned, there will be a limited edition from uh, Charnel House. Oh, Charnel House again. Yeah, yeah, been, well, over the years I've kept, you know, my hand in with Charnel House. Um, Boy, their book, their editions of that uh, "Stress of Her Regard" and "Last Call" oh, are yes. so beautiful. That guy, Joe Stefko, in charge of Charnel House, uh, we met him because he's the drummer for the Chur the Turtles. Oh, really? Yeah. So happy together. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Flo and Eddie. You know. yeah, yeah, exactly. Really? Flo and Eddie, and he was also a drummer for Meatloaf. Oh, wow. Uh, but he likes this sort of literature, and so he said. Can I do the limited edition of Stress of Her Regard? I have zero experience making books. And I said, well, that sounds good to me, yeah. <laughs> and since then, in fact, he's become a real um, scholar and collector of Byron and Shelley and uh, Mary Shelley and Claire Claremont and wow, that whole sort of social circle mm -hmm. uh, in the 1820s. But yeah, there'll be a, ideally a limited edition from, from him and of course, ideally, a uh, trade edition from, from HarperCollins. All this assuming that they don't all decide the book's too stupid to publish, which I'm always worried about. Now, I have to ask, and I, um, when I look at the, my trade edition, my I think it's an ace edition of Last Call, and my uh, Charnel House edition of Last Call, the Charnel House seems longer, and like there's more there. No, it's the same text. It is. I mean, there is. might be very slight copy editing differences. Mm -hmm. uh, some semicolon that HarperCollins convinced me would better be a period. <laughs> but no, it's the same text. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the other question I have is, do you think that uh, you might be um, someday? returning to the characters and the situations of your uh, earthquake weather last call uh, trilogy. I would love to. I mean, that character Kuthumi Parganas is, uh, <laughs> God, he's 29 now. Uh, yeah, I would love to, mm -hmm. except I guess it would be very self-indulgent. <laughs> you know the way... I old writers want to write books in which all their characters come together to like have beer. <laughs> uh, so far no editor seems to find the idea as charming as I do. Really? That, that's, I could what, they, they haven't talked to their readers? <laughs> I could sneak it in just say, well, we're going to have a character named this and, a character, and with no reference, mm -hmm. no mention that these characters had appeared previously. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And the editor might very well not remember. Uh, which I'd love to do it. Mm -hmm. They were they were interesting characters. Mm -hmm. Now you've written a a, a a small amount 
a fair amount, actually, of, of both uh, shorter work and collaborative work. True. Uh, talk about uh, working with James Blaylock and, and uh, some of the collaborations, too, with J.K. Potter. Well, Potter, of course, is as illustrator, mm -hmm. comes along. I mean, we're not doing it at the same oh, time. Okay. Uh, but with Blaylock, um, I've known Blaylock since 1972 mm -hmm. uh, in college, and uh, we both were writing this sort of stuff. Me coming into the field by way of Lovecraft, Heinlein, Sturgeon, mm -hmm. Blaylock coming to it by way of. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, uh, Poe, and um, I was 20, I think he was 22, and we've both ever since read and recommended the same stuff, seen the same movies, uh, it's been very, very parallel, and so it's fairly, we think the same things are funny and so forth. And so it's fairly easy for one of us to write, say, three pages at the beginning of a story, and the other to take that, rewrite it totally down to two pages, send it back. Mm -hmm. The other guy does the same. Um, we think enough alike that there's no jarring, jolting problems. Uh, and we usually, to some extent, outline a story before we start so we know pretty much the sequence of events but it's interesting that and we agree on what the story is going to consist of but it's interesting to get the other guys say four pages and realize oh we didn't see it exactly alike I see he was thinking of it um, with some perceptible differences okay let me address those and so you d genuinely do wind up with a story that neither could have written alone um, and I'm very pleased with some of them. Uh, you guys both have a goofy sense of humor, and, and the sense of humor that uh, that uh, informs your work too is makes it also makes it really fun. And I think we both get it from the same sources: mm. um, Benchley, Thurber, Hunter Thompson. Mm. Uh, That's an interesting selection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then that helps. The things that he thinks are funny, I'm going to think are funny, too. Um, and I can't really imagine collaborating with anybody except Blaylock, because there's nobody besides him who I've grown up with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of reflected off of mm -hmm. uh, for so long. Um, but I am real pleased with the results. It would be fun to collaborate on a novel, except we'd have to find a publisher who would pay each of us mm -hmm. enough to make it worthwhile, uh, which wouldn't really be a smart move on the part of that publisher. <laughs> I've been speaking with Tim Powers. His latest novel is Three Days to Never. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Oh, listen, it's been fun. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>